Welcome to Unlearn to Learn, a podcast brought to you by the World Obesity Federation. I'm your host, Alexander. I'm the Education Manager at World Obesity, and in my role as Manager of Scope eLearning, I oversee the development of resources to improve the care and treatment of patients with obesity. In this series, I'll be speaking with some of the most experienced medical practitioners and surgeons from all over the world. Across nine episodes, we'll be examining the prevention, treatment and care of obesity by busting myths and focusing on the science behind obesity treatment and management. Whether you're a medical student, a practitioner, or simply have an interest in obesity and public health, there's something to be learned here. So join us. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. Across our first two episodes, we heard some invaluable insights from healthcare professionals from the US and Europe. In this episode, we're going to do things slightly differently. We'll be listening to a discussion between a specialist and a patient to hear how the treatment of obesity impacts mental well-being. We'll be joined by Professor Carl LaRue from University College Dublin and Wendy Reza, a patient living with obesity. Carl is Director of the Metabolic Medicine Group at University College Dublin. He obtained his PhD from Imperial College London and then moved to University College as Chair in Experimental Pathology before moving to his current role. His research focuses on how the gut and brain talk to each other and how the mechanisms of bariatric surgery allow better clinical care for patients. Wendy Reza is a patient living with obesity and joins us from Saskatchewan in Canada. Together with Carl, we'll look at the impact obesity has on mental well-being and the correlations between BMI and depression. Carl and Wendy, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Carl, would you like to kick us off by telling us a little bit about your research and your career so far? So thank you very much. Um, my career has really been focused on obesity as a disease and how we can help patients and by controlling this disease. Now, it's been really challenging, but um, recently we've actually had some really good treatments that's become available. But more importantly, our insight into the disease of obesity has improved significantly. Excellent. Thank you, Carl. And Wendy, could you tell us a little bit about your background and your work, please? I am 43 years old. Um, I live in small town Saskatchewan. I run a, I do a courier run for a local pig barn. Um, I've been happily married for the last eight years and I don't have children, but we do have two cats, Peeve and Zazzles, that really keep us on our toes, especially late at night. Um, I feel like this podcast is something that's really important because People look at people like me and just assume it's a choice or that I'm lazy. And really that for a majority of us, that is not the case at all. Um, And I'm just really excited to be able to help get the word out there and um, help educate people about obesity. So Carl, I'll now hand over to you to lead the discussion. I'd like to start by looking at the influence doctors and healthcare professionals can have on their patients both in the language they use and the information that they convey. Well, thank you. And the influence that doctors and healthcare professionals can have on health choices and mental well-being can really not be overstated um, because very often um, we are seen as figures of authority and therefore the language that we as healthcare professionals use um, can have lots of uh, replications and, uh, and impact on patients. Now, of course, if you're a patient who've had repeated failed attempts at weight loss, and that's very common, Um, then um, there could be triggers and language can aggravate depressive illness, hopelessness and poor self-esteem. 
So, Wendy, I would like to ask you, what impact has your relationship with doctors and medical practitioners um, had on your mental well-being? Is there language used during treatment that is more negative than others? (laughs) There absolutely is. I actually have some examples that I would like to talk about today. But first of all, I just want to say I've been lucky enough together a fantastic group of medical care professionals who are always in my corner. My family doctor and my dietitian have the most amazing supportive personalities that I've ever seen in the medical field. I also have had an opportunity to meet a cardiologist who treated me with such respect, compassion and warmth that he inspired me to make changes that I don't think I ever would have made without what he had to say. And All that he said to me was that I went to him, my heart was slightly enlarged, so my lungs weren't getting enough oxygen. And he said, all you have to do is tweak the way that you eat and maybe move around a little bit more. And I think we can start getting this problem back under control. And for me, that was just absolute, it was a pure joy to hear. And as for language that's negative during treatment, I have four examples that brought me to such lows that I hated myself for weeks, sometimes months after seeing these professionals. And now I can usually tell when a doctor walks into the room how the appointment is going to go. So I'm gonna start off. The first comment that I'm gonna talk about was made by another cardiologist. I'd been having chest pains all day and by the afternoon the pain was nearly unbearable. And for me, this was extremely scary because my dad passed away of a heart attack. So I had my best friend drive me to the walk-in clinic in a nearby small town. The doctor on call was amazing. And I I know that he was listening to me. He gave me a couple of medications, but he he wasn't confident enough in his, in his knowledge, do what he felt was helping me enough. So he sent me to the nearest city by ambulance to a hospital there. And I wasn't seen by a cardiologist until the next afternoon because they actually forgot about me. By that time I was feeling better and I, I probably could have just walked out and they wouldn't have noticed, but I stuck around because I figured, well, I should really just get things checked out. So the cardiologist finally had, had me go on a treadmill to do a stress test. And they increased the incline on the treadmill. I had to tell them there was no possible way that I could continue. My lower back was screaming at me. My left hip was throbbing. I've always had trouble with my left hip. It's not weight related because I always struggled with it, even at a normal weight. That was when the cardiologist made the comment that he wanted the nurse to put a note in her chart that there is nothing wrong with her heart. She's just fat and lazy and doesn't want to put the work into being healthy. In that moment, I realized that some medical professionals don't think that people with obesity deserve help because they're just fat and lazy. That couldn't be further from the truth. To this day, I still hear those words in my mind and I mean, it can cause mental anguish at times. In my most vulnerable moments, I can believe that to be true. Had he just taken a minute to ask whether this is a new problem or if there was an underlying issue, just showed a little compassion. That could have been a totally different experience for me. The second comment that was made, and this one's actually my my favorite because it makes me giggle now. It hurt at the time, but 
Now I giggle. It was made from an allergy specialist that I went to see. He seemed to think that he was a relationship expert or something because he looked me right in the eye and said, no man will ever love you if you don't lose weight and take better care of yourself. When I told him that my fiancé, now my husband, loved me just the way that I am, his response was, well, he must be desperate to get married because no self-respecting man would want you at the weight that you are. At that point, I stood up to leave the appointment and he tried to force me to sit down saying, we're not done here. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we were pretty much done. I was shaking so badly that I had to stop by my workplace to calm down and a couple of my coworkers told me that I should report him, but I refused. And the reason that I refused was that I truly believed the comment that he made was my fault. If I wasn't so fat, he wouldn't have talked to me like that. I now know that it most definitely was not my fault and that no one should be allowed to talk to me like that. My third example came from a plastic surgeon. This is another one that can still really hurt and at times bring me to tears when I think about it. Being the size that I am, my back screams at me on a regular basis, so I wanted to see about her breast reduction. I was sitting on her exam table, naked from the waist up, vulnerable and scared. As soon as she walked in, I knew the appointment wasn't going to go well. I could read it in her face. She sat down in front of me, proceeded to give me an extremely rough and physically painful exam and told me there was no way that I would be a candidate for the surgery unless I lost 30% of my body weight. And even then, she'd only think about it and possibly might not do the surgery. When I started to cry from a combination of pain and humiliation, she looked me right in the eye and said, I don't know why you were sitting on my in my office crying. I didn't make you fat. You did that to yourself. When I started crying even harder, my husband, who's the kindest, most gentle person you'll ever meet, stood up and told her to leave the room. She turned at the door and said, put your shirt back on and pull yourself together. When I come back into the room, you had better be gone. Again, I felt like it was my fault that she had talked to me like that. I honestly believed that I was a disgusting monster, and I believed that I deserved it, and once again, I was very wrong. My fourth and final example for you today is the gynecologist who told me, if I do a hysterectomy on you, you will 100% die on that table. I had struggled with menstrual cramps and very heavy bleeding from the time that I was nine. I was weak and exhausted. I'd been to this doctor before, so I held out hope that she would be willing to help me. By this point, I knew that I wasn't going to have children, and I was okay with it. When she looked at me and explained that there was a point during the operation that they had to tilt the table and that I would definitely die, I felt deflated and hopeless. I felt fat and useless. At that moment, I decided that I was done and that my life wasn't worth saving, so I was going to eat what I wanted and do what I wanted because I was beyond help. Here's the thing, though. I I really wasn't beyond help. I wasn't worth giving up on, and I certainly wasn't a waste of flesh. I'm really, those those are very tough stories to listen to even, you know, so much harder to live through, you know, and I I really want to apologize, you know, from, you know, us as the medical profession, um, because very often, you know, these things are being said, um, and we don't think about it carefully enough. And so, so, you know, thank you for sharing that. That really helps us become better. And, you know, this relationship between obesity and common mental health disorders is complex and it's very often bi-directional. 
You know, in 2010, there was research in the psychiatry journal for the American Medical Association, and they found that people who were living with obesity had 55% increased risk of developing depression, whereas people experiencing depression had a 58% uh, increased risk of having obesity. So, Wendy, to what extent do you feel these are two interlinked issues? I was always... I mean, according to my schoolmates, I was always bigger than the rest of them. Looking back now, I was actually just looking at my graduation picture the other day. I was a pretty healthy, normal size when I graduated from high school. So what they were saying just wasn't true. But as a teenager, you don't see the truth in it. So yeah, I had some pretty big mental health issues in high school. There were times where where I thought it would be easier if I just wasn't around anymore. I felt like I was an embarrassment to my parents. I was an only child, so I was—I felt like I was all that they had to be proud of. And uh, it was really hard. And the only thing that stopped me was that when I was 10 or 11, my uncle had killed himself and I saw how that impacted the family. So then I knew, I just knew I couldn't do it. And then as an adult, I mean, I I was definitely, definitely overweight. My weight went up. But when my dad passed away, I fell into a really, really hard depression. And I gained like 150 pounds or something like that. And that was 13 years ago. And I'm still still struggling with that weight to this day. So they are they're definitely it's definitely intermixed together. Now, serotonin is a chemical in the brain that is really a key to stabilize and regulate mood and well-being and happiness. And low levels of this chemical, um, you know, have been associated with depression. And we have good treatments today, medications that are so-called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs. And um, the chemical serotonin also impacts sleep and appetite and digestion. And what we now find is that serotonin is made from amino, the amino acid tryptophan and this is better absorbed with carbohydrate rich foods and there's some theories that would suggest that this may explain you know the chemical impacts on appetite and carbohydrate cravings. Um, Wendy um, how has your experience been with diet? Have you seen correlation between food um, cravings and your mood? Absolutely but it doesn't seem to matter if I'm happy, if I'm sad. Basically, what I have found, and I just realized this actually within the last six months to a year, it doesn't seem to matter what what I'm feeling. I want to celebrate with food, and I'm finally starting to learn other methods of, of celebration or or grief or whatever, but there is absolutely a correlation between mood and food in my case. Okay. 
I can I can understand that, you know, because and that's true for people with obesity and without obesity. Um, because you know, when we are happy, we would eat, or when we are sad, we would eat. But this relationship is not necessarily only there for people living with obesity. It can certainly also be there for others. Um, and understanding this complex interplay is something that that you know we really need to need to do better. So, Alexander, I'd be um, handing over to you, and this has been a super interesting conversation with Wendy, and I'm so grateful for her sharing this with us. So, Alexander, I'm handing back to you. Absolutely, and um, thank you both, but particularly thank you, Wendy, for sharing those stories. They really were quite upsetting to hear, like Carl said. And I suppose one last question I would have is, given that you've experienced this, a question I have for both of you is, what can we do to ensure healthcare professionals do communicate with their patients with the empathy and the sensitivity that they deserve. So from my side, I would say that if we as healthcare professionals recognize obesity as a disease, as a chronic disease, no more special or less special than any other chronic disease, that moment the penny drops and it allows us to just treat our patients with the empathy um, that we would give anybody that suffers from a chronic disease. But until that happens, we can very often hear that our own prejudices may come through and that is not good enough. So really that education piece is important and uh, we need to be able to deliver that at all levels of society, but also within all levels of healthcare professionals. From my side of it, I think it's important for doctors, and I don't know if this is a skill that can be taught, I'm guessing not, but it would be nice if they would walk in without preconceived notions because you look at our charts before you see us and you see, oh my gosh, she weighs however much. Well, what am I supposed to do to help her? Like, she's obviously just fat and lazy, so there, there's no point in going above and beyond for this patient. And it's just, it, it's frustrating because for years, I really and honestly believed that I wasn't allowed to ask for help. <clears throat> and the only reason that I went and got referred to that cardiologist that was so amazing with me was because my mom phoned me one night and she was crying. And she said that, she was seeing things in me that she had seen in my dad in the months before he died. And she didn't want to lose me, so she was begging me to go get help. And that gave me the courage to then go to my family doctor. And thank goodness I have the doctor that I do. She is so amazing. And as soon as I said, my mom is seeing things in me that she saw in my dad in the months before he died, she sat up and she listened. And I could just see her her brain clicked that, okay, we need to do something. And I'm just, I'm so thankful that there's doctors out there like her. I actually get excited to go to the doctor when I'm going to see her. Whereas if I'm meeting a new specialist, I am petrified and I have to have someone, usually my husband come with me because I'm always afraid that if something happens and the appointment goes downhill, I'm not going to be able to stand up for myself like I should and I just I need that backup for courage and you should never ever need backup to to go get medical help in my opinion. So yeah, that's that's kind of kind of where I think and and just thinking 
thinking before you say something to someone like if if you wouldn't say it to your mother your sister your daughter your wife don't say it to me it i'm a person too Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. I think that's a very good point to end on. And it really does go to show the the crucial importance, really, of sensitive, empathetic communication with patients. So thank you both once again for joining. We really appreciate both of your insights. And thank you to everybody for listening. On the next episode, Professor Lillian Cow from Flinders University in Australia is going to explore bariatric surgery and the impact it can have on treating obesity. So make sure to tune in then. But thank you all for listening and goodbye for now. This has been the Unlearn to Learn podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Alexander. See you on the next episode.